Hello and welcome to episode 1345 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast with fan graphs presented by our Patreon supporters who are even more numerous than they were yesterday. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello. Ben, can I, I, can I do something I don't think that we've ever done before very briefly? We re- have recorded two interviews about two teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that when they play one after the other, it sort of gives the illusion that we're just doing them, but they've already been recorded. And yeah. so I'm going to break that illusion because back I would the curtain here. I would like to just clarify something that I say in about an hour, uh, <laughs> which is to say about an hour ago. You're going to hear me say that Max Scherzer has been the best pitcher in baseball for six years. Now, I'm not saying that Max Scherzer was the best pitcher in baseball six years ago. Right. Clayton Kershaw was the best pitcher in baseball six years Over ago. Over six years. That's I'm doing a time frame thing. Yeah. And uh, that is the the trick of the fun factor. So I I don't know exactly what day you could say that Max Scherzer became the best pitcher in baseball. I, I mean, certainly looking forward, if you'd been given the choice on that day, you might have said starting now he's the best. But this is all hard to hard to do on on uh, human scale. So I just don't want anybody to get too distracted by it. So I'm getting the distraction out of the way. Think about what I'm going to say, get used to it, live with it for a little bit. And when I say it in an hour, just let it roll right past you. Yeah. There was a a whole series of articles, I think, that you could probably look up and pinpoint exactly when maybe Max Scherzer became the best pitcher in baseball, or at least acknowledged as the best pitcher in baseball. Because uh, I think we we had an article at the Ringer Let's see. Well, this was last year that we had Clayton Kershaw as no longer the best pitcher in baseball, but I think there were spring of last year. Pretty sure I remember uh, I wrote one last May about Pete Kershaw being gone. I think there was a, okay, here we go. June 26th, 2017, there was a 538 article by Neil Payne that said Clayton Kershaw might might not be the best pitcher in baseball anymore. And that was using, I think, 538's ELO ratings of pitcher strength to judge exactly the moment when the stats would have said that he was not the best pitcher in baseball. So I guess that summer of 2017 was maybe in retrospect when there was sort of a a changing of the guard, passing of the torch. Even that, though, was still using old data. It was still reacting to data that was already in the past. Yes. So even then, if you could have, if you knew really, if you knew on a cellular level that uh, you would have been ahead of that. And uh, I don't know on a cellular level when it Mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. There was a a time, I think, when we felt it, but we didn't want to say it (laughs) yet because uh, Clayton Kershaw had been the best for so long and we liked Clayton Kershaw being the best that it felt sort of blasphemous to I, yeah, suggest. Yeah, I, I hung on longer than that Neil Payne article. I remember reading that Neil Payne article and thinking that it was too soon. Uh-huh. Too, yeah. I, I did not. I did not buy it. <laughs> I was yeah. wrong. Yeah, I guess so. Now I'm saying it. So we are going to be talking about the Nationals with Barry Sverluga of the Washington Post, and after that, we'll be talking to Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times about the Mariners. But before that. We have some stuff to talk about here with the Atlantic League, which I talked about briefly last week when it was announced that there would be a partnership between the Atlantic League and MLB to test out some rules changes. Now we know what those changes will be. And as Emma Bacheleri just tweeted, it's cool to see the first baseball league inspired by a podcast just really going all in on answering if baseball were different, how different would it be? 
don't think this was actually inspired by this podcast, but it is sort of in line with the things that we tend to talk about. So I'll just read out. Here's the the press release that we got and the list of changes that apparently are decided for 2019. So here we go. All right. Lay them on me. Home plate umpire assisted in calling balls and strikes by a TrackMan radar tracking system. Doesn't say assisted how, so we don't know if it's going to be like an automatic thing or whether he's going to have something in his ears or uh, his it, eyes. It picks up in dry cleaning. Yeah, I, I don't know. So continuing, no mound visits permitted by players or coaches other than for pitching changes or medical issues. Pitchers must face a minimum of three batters or reach the end of an inning before they exit the game unless the pitcher becomes injured. Increased size of first, second, and third base from 15 inches square to 18 inches square. Require two infielders to be on each side of second base when a pitch is released. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. <laughs> yeah. 18 square inches is a, was, is six by three. The base is not six by three inches. Hmm. What are we talking about here? Different shaped bases? I don't know. I thought it was just bigger bases. but They're telling me that the current bases are 15 square inches. Outlandish. That would be (laughs) a small base. (laughs) I don't know. That's what the press release says. Two infielders to be on each side of second base, so basically banning the shift. And if that's not the case, then the ball's dead. The umpire shall call a ball. Time between innings and pitching changes reduced from 2 minutes and 5 seconds to 1 minute and 45 seconds. And lastly, distance from pitching rubber to home plate extended 24 inches in the second half of the season only with no change to mound height or slope. MLB will analyze the effects of these changes before deciding on potential additional modifications during the All-Star break and in future seasons. So- I, I, <laughs> I am going to prepare you for a, uh, a conversation of me saying, can you read that one again? Because I was really hung up on the size of these bases. <laughs> I could tell. A, the, bases are, the bases are 15 inch squares, which is not. Oh, 15 square inches. Okay, 15 inches square. They are 225 square inches. Good edit. Good edit. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Okay. Well, basically, this is like every change that uh, has been talked about over the past few years. They're just making them all at once. And (laughs) a thing about bases for some reason. Can you explain the base? This is supposed to help base running? Like it's supposed to help make it easier to steal? Yeah, I think that's the idea that like we can't tamper with 90 feet because 90 feet is just inviolate and it's always been 90 feet and it's handed down on stone tablets or something. So instead of shortening the base pass, then you just fool everyone by just making the bases bigger so they don't even notice. <laughs> this is just so right for Photoshop. Somebody's got to somebody's oh, got to yeah. make the 30-foot base. <laughs> yeah. So the idea I guess is that stolen bases are down at least relative to recent years and so if you make the bases closer together by just making the bases bigger yeah. then essentially you're taking a longer lead without it actually being a lead so it gives you some incentive to run so well i had a i i i that makes me think of the billy hamilton Usain Bolt article yeah. that I wrote, which was looking at whether 90 feet is is still long enough given the progress of human physiques. Mm-hmm. And I, I worried that there was a point coming in the future where a runner would be so fast that it would be essentially impossible to throw him out. And I, I worried that, but I found it was not it was not necessarily looming or imminent. But six inches is a pretty big like you don't see guys get thrown out by six inches very often. And mm-hmm. uh that's what we're talking about, right? Six inches. Yeah, yeah. And you're giving them a lot, you know, you're giving them a lot bigger sliding lane too. That's true too, yeah. And it's easier to hang on as well. Easier to hang on so you can do a more aggressive slide because now you've got 
three inches more of uh, of runway to land mm-hmm. on. Yeah, so a lot of these changes in isolation, taking one by one, I either like or am intrigued enough by that I'd like to see them in this sort of laboratory environment. I guess one of my first reactions, which is also something Emma tweeted, is that it seems sort of strange to do this all at once. <laughs> it seems like like if you wanted to evaluate this scientifically, if you wanted to quantify okay, what does enlarging the bases do or what does moving the mound back do or, you know, take each of these things and try to say, okay, what happens if we change this? Because presumably when you port these things over to Major League Baseball, you're probably not going to just dump all of these changes all at once. You might just work them in. So that is sort of strange to me that they're just doing them all at once so that there will be these kind of overlapping effects and it'll be hard to tease out what is doing what. On the other hand, if the idea is just to demonstrate that these are feasible and that you can make professional baseball players do these things and it won't destroy baseball, then I guess there's some value to just saying it can be done. <laughs> Not to get hung up on the bases, but <laughs> if, you move, <laughs> if you move the mound back two feet, you're also giving the runner two feet extra that the pitcher has to throw. So you're now yep. you're slowing the time to the to the plate. Mm-hmm. And I have not done I'm sorry, I have not done the Pythagorean theorem on this yet, but you're moving it back two feet. You're probably moving the pickoff throw back by like I don't know what that is, like 0.8 feet or something like that. Yeah. Maybe harder uh, to field bunts. On the other hand, maybe easier to field comebackers or or not get hit in the head, which is probably good. So what do you think of that? Like just I like before the bases we, one. I, I can tell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> before before we talk about each idea, just like the idea of doing them all at yeah. once. I I I basically agree with with that. I I don't know that I think that there's too much overlap. Just to go, just to start though, I think that moving the mound back two feet is 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 already way too much to start mm-hmm. with. I I I have I don't know, man. I I really feel like two inches could make a big difference. I don't know what it would take to make a big difference, but it would not surprise me if it were a matter of, of, of inches of that you could do an almost in, in imperceptible change and -hmm. have a big difference because I really feel like the, the speed that a baseball is delivered at in 60 feet, six, six inches is right on the edge of human physical possibility. Right. And that, that the ability to, identify a baseball coming from 60 feet six inches is like the great filter in the sport that and uh you know the elbow tendon and i don't know where the the line is where it becomes uh, like significantly easier or or more kind of realistic to hit baseballs two feet maybe it's two feet but i feel like you could go four inches at a time on that Mm-hmm. And they probably should. Two feet seems like that's a lot. Or six inches. Just get the round number. It's almost asking for it to be six inches. But uh-huh. I wrote about this at BP years ago, and I didn't do math really, but I quoted math that Alan Nathan did. And he sort of suggested the same thing, that you would not have to move it much because it would really increase the window with which you have to make a decision about swinging or not. Really, you wouldn't have to do much to make a meaningful difference there. So since I wrote that article, I've been 
all for advocating moving the mound back. I I thought it was a better solution than other strikeout suppressing solutions that it just makes sense because pitchers have gotten so much bigger. They release the ball closer to home plate than they used to. Obviously, they throw harder. It, It just it seems in the interest of fairness, move the mound back. I did have my mind not changed, but but at least opened. I, I, I don't know whether you saw that J.J. Cooper wrote something about this for Baseball America, and he quoted Kyle Bodie of Driveline Baseball, who suggested that he thinks this might actually help pitchers. Mm-hmm. And that's the opposite of what I've been thinking. And I asked Kyle about that and why he thinks that. And, and he said that movement exponentially increases over distance right so there's more what is the ball also as the ball slows there's more drag right right so kyle thinks that strikeouts and walks would go up if you do this and he thinks there would be fewer balls in play which is the opposite of the intended change and and the opposite of what i had been thinking because i had been thinking if you have to throw from farther away you're you're just giving batters a longer look at everything so even though there would be more total movement just because the pitch is in the air longer and gravity is acting on it longer, that it would be easier to distinguish the difference between pitches because batters would just get a longer look and and they wouldn't have to gear up so much to catch up with the fastball because the fastball wouldn't be as fast. But now Kyle is making me doubt whether that's actually true and whether this might backfire in multiple ways because then there's there's also the concern of, are guys going to try to throw harder to make up for this? And are they going to hurt themselves? Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, like who knows? That's the point of, of, of trying it, I guess. And so good for them. I, it, it, it seems like it could be that you need to go two feet. It seems like it could be that you realize at six inches that it's having a, a reverse effect or that six inches is plenty or whatever. It feels like two feet. That's a big number. I'm just imagining a, like, <laughs> Like batters getting like vertigo and just falling over backwards trying to track the ball from such an unfamiliar place. But control is the other thing because well, so, obviously the farther you are, the, that's right, the harder yeah. it is to hit your spots. So yeah, that and benefits hitters. But and the you don't want. I mean, if the whole point is to get balls in play, like the the point of all of this is that you want to incentivize. You somehow want to incentivize. This is the big this is the big dilemma for baseball is they want to incentivize pitchers to throw the ball in the strike zone and they want to incentivize hitters to swing and mm-hmm. it is hard to do both of those things at the same time you're either going to make it more more profitable for hitters to put the ball in play in which case you're going to encourage pitchers to work on the edges because balls in play are more productive or you're going to make it less profitable to put the ball in play, in which case you're going to incentivize batters to try to draw walks. And I don't know what the solution is for any of that. I don't know that this is it, but uh, sure, go ahead. And so I, I'm a little bit um, sympathetic to the idea, though, of having nine experiments going on at the same time, <laughs> because probably you don't want to spend the appropriate amount of time to test each of these things with like a control group and all uh-huh. sorts of I mean you you sort of just want to like see if it looks like normal baseball and uh or if it's somewhat more interesting baseball and you don't have I don't know you don't have that much time to do it you you do in the sense that we're going to be doing this forever but you don't in the sense that you want to have something to show for your career as a major league baseball executive I guess mm-hmm. Uh, so the overlap here does not seem to me too obvious. Like, I feel like I could watch a game with all of these rules 
And then at the end of it, write you a report. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether this will make it harder for the Atlantic League to attract pitchers or or players because the Atlantic League is a very desirable place. If you're not in affiliated ball, it's the highest level of independent baseball. It's like AAA level, if not better. Guys go back and forth between the Atlantic League and MLB all the time. But I wonder whether there will be certain guys who will be like, I don't want to play the the weird, wacky baseball. This is going to be strange. I'll just go to the Frontier League or something. Or whether the fact that this is an MLB partnership and you're going to have TrackMan installed, so you'll have your data, you'll have teams paying close attention to the league. So maybe that makes people even more attracted because they'll think it gives them a better shot of getting back into affiliated ball. I think for sure the latter. I think having your TrackMan data is huge. I mean, that's like somebody offering to give you free headshots. Uh-huh. <laughs> like that's a that's a big that if you're a pitcher and you want a major league team to sign you, you do not want to have to count on throwing a good game the one day that a scout happens to be out there looking at somebody else. Like you yeah. would love to be able to say, "Here's my spin rate," mm-hmm. and uh, let them let them see your profile. Yeah. So going through these, uh, we've talked about robo-umps plenty on this podcast. I used to be a robo-umps guy. I'm no longer a robo-umps guy, but I accept that it's inevitable, and I can't tell whether my aversion to it now is driven entirely by the fact that the human element of the strike zone gives me more to write about and analyze, just because strike zone is always changing in size, and catchers are influencing it, and certain other players are influencing. I would miss that just as an observer of baseball, but that's not a concern for most fans, so I, I understand why there's some groundswell of support for this. So I'm in favor of trying it and just seeing how it goes and how they implement it. So that seems fine. No mound visits is great. I'm curious to see how that goes. That seems like one of those things where if you take it away and everything's fine, then that would really make it more likely to be embraced and accepted. Because if you can get by without it, then right now it's like no mound visits. What do we do? But if you have no mound visits and life just goes on, then hopefully we can eradicate or or really cut back on those because I can't believe they are as necessary as they seem to be. I haven't really thought about this before, but I also am, am like you. Am, I mean, I'm not passionate about it one way or the other, but I prefer no robo-umps at this point after having previously been a robo-umps guy. However, there are a lot of baseball games played around the world, and they all have to spend money on umpires. And I wonder how you would feel about a world where there are umps, you know, good old umps, major league umps in the majors, but little leagues and so on can quit paying 30 bucks for an ump every game Mm. do you would that be could could that work would that be normal if like the whole world of baseball had a i mean obviously it's not going to happen right now because trackman's still expensive but like yeah yeah, but but fast forward 15 years do you think it's plausible that trackman or that a robo ump strike zone could be like a very normal part of baseball and yet major league baseball could maintain this this connection to its tradition or would it just seem absolutely absurd that the one place we allow human error to dictate um, (laughs) game outcomes is the most high-profile, high-stakes games. Yeah, I think that would probably be untenable if no one else used it and and the the flagship brand of baseball did use it. But the question is whether you need an umpire anyway. Even if the umpire's not calling balls and strikes, you need someone to rule on foul tips or plays at the plate. You're talking like in the Little League scenario. Well, maybe it's less necessary at at some levels of baseball, but yeah, you still need someone to make a lot of those calls. So 
I don't know that you can dispense with the Empire anyway. So clearly it's hard to do if there's an umpire's union, but even aside from that, you, you kind of need an umpire for other reasons. My first job was as a home plate umpire. Have I ever said that on this show? I don't think so. Well, that's true. Huh. How were you? Uh, I was scared. I was, a sure, very, yeah, I was, I'd be terrified. Yeah, I was not a very good umpire. I was a very nervous umpire, but the main thing is that I was uh, really bad at remembering to update the ball strike uh, counter clicker. <laughs> yeah. And then I was just in perpetual terror of, of, <laughs> of it getting two four balls or three strikes <laughs> yeah. and me not knowing. I also, I liked being a, a base ump a lot more, but I was then in perpetual terror of a checked swing. The mm. thing about little league umps too, is that you're, you're, you're the, they, there are only two umps. And so they appeal. I think this happened in the Stomper season too, which drove me nuts. And I, maybe I've talked about this on the show, but they appeal to the base umpire, even when he's on the wrong side of the field. <laughs> and you're like, well, what do you want me to do? I didn't see it. I'm worse. So I didn't like umping that much. After I got to be a little older, I was qualified to be the league scorer. And I liked that a great deal. My mom would bring me a sandwich. <laughs> so I, I think Jeff and I talked about the three batter minimum thing because it was discussed as something that might happen in the majors soon. Do you have any thoughts on this? I probably do, but I actually am uncomfortable talking about a thing that has already been discussed. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I just would sound like such a dork. So why don't we postpone that conversation for a few months? <laughs> okay, till we can start repeating ourselves and not have yeah. to worry about it. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've covered the base size adequately. I think probably I I, I kind of like that. I, I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> So the the one that Twitter is going to hate is the requiring infielders, two infielders to be on each side of second base, basically an attempt to ban the shift. So I mean, sure, we've discussed this when it has come up because Rob Manfred has mentioned it in the past. This is the one that just doesn't seem to fit with the others in that doesn't really seem like the pressing problem. And, and people have lumped in the shift with all this other stuff about pace of play or, or strikeouts and contact. And I think there's a lot of doubt that it actually is having any sort of suppressive effect or or at least affecting entertainment of the game. And aside from just the philosophical dispute about whether you want to actually legislate against a, a strategy as opposed to just having, say, hitters come up with their own counter strategy of bunting or hitting the other way or whatever. So I don't like it on both of those grounds, and I'm sort of disappointed that it is being lumped in with all these other interesting changes. I agree. I, I find it I, I feel uh, somewhat embarrassed that this issue, uh, that this idea keeps coming up. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that the shift is interesting. The uh, getting to see different defenses adds a variety to the game and getting to add an extra element of cat and mouse to the batter defense relationship is interesting to the game. I, I mean, I watch baseball and I try to sort of keep in mind how I watch football, which is to say about two games a year, and how I watch basketball, which is maybe 10 games a year, and what interests me about a game when I'm watching one of those, because I figure baseball would like some fans like me to watch two or 10 games instead of zero. And I I think that having different systems, different offensive and defensive schemes is why those sports can be interesting, even though I barely know the backstories or the players. Um, and so to me, like saying you all have to run exactly the same defense feels really, really weird to me. And yeah. the fact that it is a 
essentially an, an element of imagination that players and teams are working out in front of us. Like it's like free money. It seems to me for baseball to have this interesting novel thing going on that makes every play slightly different than the play before it. Uh, and it feels like a very odd thing to try to kill. And as you note, for practically no practical gain. Yeah, I don't like it. The other change that is just time between innings and pitching changes reduced by 20 seconds, which sure sounds good. If you can, if you can do that, that's fine. Do you think there's any confounding effect with any of these changes when it comes to assessing the impact of any one of them? Like, for instance, if you do the trackman radar for the strike zone, and then you also do the mound distance, and the mound distance is second half of the season, so you will get trackman radar without the mound distance for half the season. But like, if you did those two things at once, then you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell what the impact on offense was because you'd have to figure out, okay, what's the impact of the robo strike zone, which it's hard to tell what that'll be. I tend to think it will favor hitters on the whole just because they'll be able to predict what a strike is and decide to swing accordingly. On the other hand, kind of depends where you set the dimensions because there are certain pitches right now that would really never be called strikes but are technically rulebook strikes and they'd be hard to hit. So if you then have to either take those for strikes or swing at them and not hit them hard, that would hurt. But you know, if you do those two things at once, then it will be hard to say this is what moving the mound does and this is what the strike zone change does. So I do to some degree. I think that that is the best example of one where it would be hard to uh, to untease the effects or to tease the effects or whatever the word is. Uh, <laughs> but I don't. Uh, I don't think that you. I don't think that baseball in the Atlantic League is similar enough to baseball in the majors that you're going to have anything conclusive anyway. The 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 speed of the game is just different in the majors and the distribution of talent is different in the majors and everything the the speed of defenders and uh the speed of runners and the power involved it's all different and so the effects are not going to just very easily plop from one environment to the other. There are going to be really distortive effects um, from moving from one level to the other anyway that is going to change what the impact of each of these things are. And so I don't think that you try these trying to say that you're going to like solve the, the, the translations. You're not going to say like, okay, we're going to go from you know, 24,000 home runs league wide to 25,060 home runs league wide. It's not going to be that precise. You're basically just looking at it and saying, does that look like baseball? Do we like it? And, you know, ultimately you're going to want to do modeling on the effects in the major league level, given what you know there. You're going to want to talk to the players who play, given what what they know and how they experience and how they would adjust to these sorts of things. And you're going to kind of want to see a a demonstration of what it looks like at, you know, a fairly high level. But, you know, it's this is not the whole this is not the whole study, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm okay with it being kind of sloppy. Yeah, me too. I we can quibble with 
some of these specific proposals or the way they're being implemented, but in general, I'm happy that this is happening. I think there hasn't been enough experimentation with this sort of thing. Like teams and players are constantly experimenting with everything, but the league itself is pretty static and has not made major changes. So I think it's a good sign that they're willing to entertain these ideas and test them out. I was on a panel last week at the Sloan Conference with Chris Young, the pitcher who is now with MLB, and he's been one of the people who has been working on this initiative. And he's a really smart and thoughtful guy, and they're putting a lot of thought into this. So I am curious to see how it all works out. It's definitely something we'll be probably writing about, certainly talking about as the season goes on, and maybe we'll actually learn something from it. I've already learned something from it, Ben. I've learned (laughs) about the base. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we will take a quick break now, and we'll be back with Barry Spaluga from The Washington Post to talk about the Nationals. are joined now by the excellent sports columnist at the Washington Post, Barry Sverluga. Hey, Barry. How's it going? Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. So I guess we should start our Nationals preview by talking about a non-national who is in the news these days. What can you tell us about the Bryce Harper saga? Why is he not a Washington National? And do you think he is disappointed about that? Is the team disappointed? Do you think there's going to be any lingering resentment or anything about this as the season goes on and they play each other many times? Well, I think that's a factor in the whole dynamic is that he didn't go to the Dodgers or the Giants. He went to the Phillies and both these teams, franchises for the foreseeable future, have their eyes on on the same prize, the National League East title and, and beyond that. You know, so his fourth game as a Philly will be the Nationals' fourth game of the season here in Washington. It's It's not like it's this kind of distant thing that he, you know, almost not true. It'll be in their face all the time. Um, yeah. And that, that'll kind of, I think the relationship will kind of evolve because of that. We'll see him so many times here and in Philly, he'll be such a factor either, you know, going 0 for 4, hitting a walk-off homer, that that'll be almost inescapable. I As far as him not being a national in the time covering, you know, since he signed with the Phillies, I, I've really come to feel like somehow wires got crossed. That at various points and almost consistently through the process, Harper wanted to remain a national. The the security of what he knew, but also the idea of being a a one franchise player really did appeal to him. And I know he wanted Scott Boris to go back to the Nationals when he had other offers and and make sure that they were informed what what they were. I know there are people with the Nationals who who definitely wanted him to stay, who feel like they were a better team with him. It's almost like it came down to chronology that, you know, they made that offer before the end of the season when he didn't accept it. They felt like they had to move on. They did so pretty aggressively. and, And then that when it was, you know, late February by the time Harper was getting signed. They had kind of completed their team, and and um, so it was almost almost like a weird shell game that it didn't work out. Do you get any sense at all that now that he is no longer in the organization, that we're going to hear 
more stories about the past seven years? Is there going to be kind of any sort of public reassessment of Bryce Harper as a national uh, now that he no longer is a national? Or was he pretty well covered and pretty well under the microscope as it was? And we, we pretty much we, we got the truth about his tenure there. I feel like we did, but I'm biased as somebody who was trying to to bring the truth, right? So, um, so I, I, that's probably something for the fan base to assess a little bit better, and maybe we will learn more. I mean, I can tell you, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Harper, talking to Harper, getting to know Harper. I, I do think there is a little bit, or maybe not even a little bit. There's quite a division in the fan base on on how he was perceived here, how beloved he was. It's not the you know, kind of Derek Jeter in New York type of thing where where 100% of the fan base was was on his side. He's a little bit divisive. Some of that has to do with, you know, the kind of star stuff, the flip in the hair, and, and some of it has to do with inconsistent production. He, he wasn't the 2015 Bryce Harper for all seven years of his career. And then some of it has to do with, you know, what he would say is preserving his body by, by not always running out that grounder to second. And the fan base is saying... No, you're supposed to run out that grounder to second. There was also some division in the clubhouse about him. There's no doubt that his free agency kind of hung over certainly the 2018 Nationals because Bryce got off to such a lousy start. You know, you had to wonder, is it in his head? But there were people in the clubhouse who who thought it was difficult to set a tenor for the younger guys if the main star player, the face of the franchise, didn't always seem to go all out, both in right field and and on the base paths. I've always been really interested in the way that we saw Harper when he was coming up and, and this sort of public sense that he was a villain. And and I, at the time, I think when, when he was coming up, I think I expressed some pessimism that I couldn't really think of any 21-year-olds who were seen uh, as unlikable at 21 who grew to become likable or who kind of changed the public narrative uh, around them. And Harper really seems to have done it, that the narrative that we were sold about him as an extremely brash to the point of of problematic uh, young player wasn't really what he seems to be now. He's a productive member of society in most ways. And I'm curious, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm worried this question might sort of seem like just engaging in the same gossip, which I don't think the gossip is very helpful. But do you have a sense of whether the initial reports or the initial narrative about him was simply wrong or that he actually did manage to do the difficult thing of maturing a lot in public on the public stage. Or I guess the third option, which um, I don't know, would be gossipy, would be that the public narrative of him now is wrong. So I think it's probably a combination of of the first two. I mean, was he brash? Would he admit that he was brash? For sure. I mean, the, you know, all the eye black smeared across the face and you know he had been essentially reared to be that guy for forever right he was on the cover of sports illustrated at at 16 he did the ged thing he went to juco to um, accelerate his arrival in the draft All, all of those things create kind of an edge around him and then you add in the way he he acted on the field he wasn't above you know gawking at his homers he seemed to be impressed with himself at, at a young age. And I do chalk the 26-year-old Bryce Harper up to kind of extreme maturation. He's not a teenager anymore. He's a married man who's wanting to start a family. I found 
his reflections on his time in Washington and the game to be quite thoughtful at times. When you get him going on a on a subject that he cares about, and, and baseball is one of those, he really goes after it. He's he's all in and and engaged and thoughtful. Um, he's smart. He's not just this kind of teenager with a teenage mind anymore. He's he's a student of the game. He understands the business he's in. I, I think there's been you know I think of yourself between 19 and 26. It's it's that's a big chunk of your life at that time. None of us had to do the maturation in public. He he did. And I think it's pretty genuine. So in Harper's absence, of course, you have a full season of Soto, which I'll ask you about. You hope that Adam Eaton will stay healthy this year. That would go a long way toward replacing the production you got from Harper. But you also have Victor Robles in center field, which is a really nice consolation prize for Nationals fans. Harper may be gone, but your team's top prospect also plays outfield and he is ready right now. So what kind of season should people expect from Robles? Well, that'll be really interesting. And I think if we go back to why there was some sort of comfort level with part of the fan base as to moving on from Harper is is exactly that, that Robles is ready and Soto, we got, you know, almost a earlier than expected preview from him last year. So, you know, what were we saying about Byron Buxton when he came up with the Twins? I mean, is, is was he going to change that franchise? I, I think it could go almost any direction with Robles. One thing he does right away is make them a better defensive team. They were pretty horrendous defensively last year. Bryce played in center a lot out of necessity. He's not a center fielder anymore. He's not even a great right fielder anymore. So Robles can go get any ball with the best of them right now. And then given their lineup, because they have Trey Turner and Adam Eaton, who are either of them could hit leadoff for for most teams, and certainly either could hit first or second. It doesn't sound like Davey Martinez is going to shove Robles up to the front top of the lineup. He'll hit either you know, most likely eighth, or sometimes ninth, if if Martinez is doing the pitcher hits eighth thing, which is kind of intriguing if you're into that, because then you get a, you know, maybe a third leadoff hitter in a row at the bottom of the order in Robles. So he's intriguing because of his athleticism. He's intriguing because of his speed. He's intriguing because of his youth. And he's he's kind of like the, you know, at this point, he's kind of like the backup quarterback. He's everybody's favorite player because no one's seen him, you know, over the course of 150 games. They're They're not sure where the holes are, what the holes are, and and how he's going to handle the entirety of it all. Speaking of Davey Martinez, the Washington Nationals managers over the last uh, dozen years or so uh, have had some ups and downs. And the very shallow picture that I think made it out to the rest of the country last year was that David Martinez's first year was pretty rough, that the Nationals were disappointing, and that uh, he had some uh, he had to fend off some criticism from his own players, which is never good uh, over his bullpen usage, which is a key part of a manager's job. I always wonder, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, but I always do wonder how much of that is because Washington Nationals writers are really good. Like you guys have some of the best <laughs> beat writers that any team has, and that probably gets more of this out. But I mean, do you have a sense of uh, Davey Martinez's plan for year two relative to year one, what he learned, what the differences are, and uh, whether he makes it in Washington? Yeah, so I haven't been to spring training. I'm going to spring training next week, so I don't have firsthand accounts and, and haven't talked to, to Davey about it. I, I would say this, though, you know, when they did not bring back Dusty Baker and and I'm not going to go down the Dusty Baker rabbit hole as to whether he was a good manager or not, but they did win two division titles with him in, in two seasons. 
Um, Mike Rizzo, the general manager, said uh, we're making this change because getting to the first round is not good enough anymore. So that immediately set up a standard for whoever the next person was. And the next person was Davey Martinez, who had never managed a major league game in his life. Last year was rough for for sure. I don't think he's the greatest public face on a day-to-day. I mean, he's very positive, but it, it was a hard season. And it was hard. For me, it's hard to watch someone be relentlessly positive when the results were an 82 and 80 year for a team that was, you know, expecting to win 95 games and and win another division title and move forward in the playoffs. Bullpen usage is definitely part of it. That's, as you pointed out, such a big part of a manager's job right now. I will say, even though I've seen managers lose this clubhouse before, and it didn't seem to me like he lost the clubhouse. So that's important because if you're coming back in year two, you know, you can't come back to a clubhouse that is looking at you skeptically. But I also think you're not going to see kind of the, some of the Joe Madden histrionics that we saw last year in in spring training, you know, bringing camels to spring to camp to represent getting over the hump and hitting <laughs> hitting golf shots that when that when you f- do that and it and it doesn't work out, it looks pretty foolish in in the rearview mirror. So I think you're going to see fewer of those antics. I I think it's a big year for Davey Martinez and a big year for this franchise in general. So we get the full season of Soto this year, and I I can't really even imagine how he could be more impressive because he had this precocious, almost preternatural plate discipline, maybe the best offensive season by a teenager ever in some respects. So where do you go from there? Is there some weakness that he can improve or is it just like, yeah, more of that, please? So, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his slash line right now, 292, 406, 517. Like, if that's his career, that he's done nothing wrong, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and and the thing, you mentioned the plate discipline, and that's kind of where it starts. I, I think you're, you're talking about a teenager who got on base 40% of the time at a walk rate of 16%. If he can carry that number and keep hitting his pitches, swinging at his pitches, That'll be the key. I can't imagine a situation where, you know, his OBP or his OPS climb. I, that that just seems, you know, he had fewer than 500 plate, plate appearances. So, you know, kind of a full season, but not the the 650 plus that they're going to want to get from him this year. If If they get those exact same numbers again, I would think they would be absolutely thrilled. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know how to make sense of him. Um, it he it's doesn't just, make sense. Yeah, it's not. It's not only do you not expect. I mean, you know, he's arguably the you know arguably one of the great, maybe the great nineteen year old offensive season ever in the modern age. But also, you just don't expect that style of player. Like you expect a player who's nineteen to have the advantage of athleticism and speed and you know kind of a, a, a newness that allows him to ambush the league in a way. And I mean, he put up Joey Votto's line. It's nuts. Right. right. <laughs> and and that's that's the thing, too. You know, we talked about Robles. I feel like the fan base has been waiting for Robles a little bit. He's 21. It's the, it's the normal kind of progression. Juan Soto started last year in Hagerstown. You know, he, he did not start last year in, in the Eastern League. He started in low class A. So not only... You know, there are there are stories of player development guys who will say it in the spring, like, well, keep your eye on this guy. He's going to help us by the end of the year, and, and they can turn out to be right. Nobody in the Nationals organization on March 8th, 
2018 was saying Juan Soto is going to help the big league club by OPSing 925 uh, over 116 games. You know, <laughs> that, that sentence, anybody who tells you that is not telling the truth. So he's, it's all about, to me, maintenance. And because the basis of his season, of his skill set seemed to be that pitch selection, that's not a bad place to start because, you know, you, you would hope that if it was there for almost 500 plate appearances last year, it, it would continue to be there for 650 this year. A lot of times on conversations like this, we ask you about a player who's who's been pretty good and then he had a bad year. And then we say, well, can, can is there anything that explains the bad year? And I'm curious about Michael Taylor, who is sort of the opposite. He's had a pretty bad career and then he had this one really good year in 2017. And I, I, I really like Michael Taylor as a player uh, when he looks like that. Is there an explanation for how he reached that? And is it realistic or is he like, really kind of just a non-option fourth outfielder at this point well that's a hard one to answer because you every time i decide that i've decided something about michael taylor he kind of does the opposite but you're you're right i mean you look at essentially his four major league seasons ops of 640 654 806 in 2017 and then 644 so it's almost like the Bryce question, like was was 2015 the MVP year, the outlier for Bryce? I don't think that's the that's the case. I'm more inclined to think that that 2017 was the outlier for Taylor. I, I, I feel like he tends to get exposed over time. I mean, it, you know, it's not a shame in 2019 to, to have a, a high strikeout rate, but he is such an all or nothing guy. So... I I am wary of him. I like him defensively. I think he's useful that way. He it's this weird. I feel like there's this weird in between with him where he's not really great off the bench because he needs regular at bats. But then when he gets regular at bats over months and months and months, he kind of get ex, gets exposed. So I'm not sure what to make of him. I I I would say you know if you're a Nats fan, you really are rooting for Eaton's health because. I think you want Adam Eaton out there more times than you want Michael Taylor. I want to ask you an Anthony Rendon question because I just feel pressure to do some Anthony Rendon advocacy because I think he is still underappreciated, at least outside of D.C., maybe because he has been a teammate of Harper and Strasburg and Scherzer and all these big-name guys. And he's just also one of these players who's really great at everything but not a big black ink guy who's leading the league. So... Is there much movement toward an extension for him, do you think? And my impression is that he is very underrated. I don't know whether that's the case in D.C. or whether that's just more of a national thing. So I think it's probably a national thing. I think if you're a Nationals fan and you're watching 100-plus games, you have nothing but an appreciation for him. He's His last two years have just been so outstanding. Um, health is an issue with him, too. But, you know, he led the league in doubles last year, 900-plus OPS, plays a superior third base, you know, not Arenado level, but but not terribly far behind. And then, again, because everything is kind of seen through the prism of Bryce here, if I talk about that segment of the fan base that was fine moving on from Bryce, part of them are fine moving on from Bryce as long as signing Rendon to an extension is part of the, part of the plan. That is part of the plan. I know that they wanted to aggressively 
move toward at least, you know, talks with him this spring. He is represented by Scott Boris. We know the history of Scott Boris clients and extensions before they reach free agency. We also know one of the outliers there is Steven Strasberg, who got his extension done with the Nationals as a Boris client before he reached free agency. So it's not it's not impossible. But this team hasn't produced a an everyday player that it's signed to an extension since Ryan Zimmerman. Um, there's a huge sentiment among the fan base that they would like Anthony Rendon to um, to be the next one. And, and that would give them some stability going forward as well. So it's something to watch in the early, at the end of spring training in the early part of the season, for sure. I would like to expand the underrated superstar conversation a little bit. I, I think a lot about Mike Trout and not being uh, as famous as some people want him to be. And I have a lot of conversations with people about that and whether it's baseball's fault or whether it's Mike Trout's fault or whatever. And it occurred to me the other day that Max Scherzer has been the best pitcher in baseball for six years. And not only is he not at all famous in the world, he doesn't really even like he's not famous among ballplayers the way that Mike Trout is. He's not famous among fun fact Twitter the way Mike Trout is. He is, I don't think, like obsessed over and endlessly uh, analyzed the way Mike Trout is. He is just the best player in baseball over the or the best pitcher in baseball over a half dozen years. And probably I was thinking about this, probably the best superstar free agent signing since Bonds in 93 or Maddox in the same uh, era. So he is, if I'm not wildly mistaken, getting a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. Would you say that assessment is true? And do you know what he's doing that makes him better and better? So, you know, it's amazing. I think you're right. He's, he's getting better. And I, and the thing we keep waiting for, so he's now 34, he's going to turn 35 in July, is like, when does that stop? Like, it has to stop at some point. You know, his his whip over the last four years, his whip with the Nationals, 0. 0.918, 0. 0.968, 0. 0.902, 0. 0.911. Like, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing, amazing stretch for a guy who, before he signed that seven-year, $210 million deal... You look back at the the history of of um, hundred million dollar pitcher contracts, and it's just you know it's much more disastrous than this. This is already one of the best pitcher free agent contracts ever, and and he could get hit by a bus tomorrow, and that would that would remain the case. He's got three years left on a on a seven year deal. He's more than halfway into it, and it's been it's been amazing. One thing that happened when he was getting to Washington is is he did develop a, a fourth pitch and so he's got he's got it all now his fastball is still such a weapon i still consider it his it's really his most important pitch because he so often throws it for strike 1 he he's so aggressive with it he gives up his share of homers mostly solo homers because he's aggressive with it and he's smart about that he's fine with that but the question i i I just think is most intriguing with him is when when does the improvement or at least maintain the maintenance of his superiority end? Is it this year? It could be. He wouldn't allow himself to think that or allow any fan to think that that he's coming off a 300 strikeout year. He's an amazing person to watch. And if he's underrated or or not known nationally, his starts in, in D.C. every fifth day are, are, are definitely events. People mark him down and and 
people are into it more than they're not. I want to ask you about the big offseason acquisition, Patrick Corbin, who had a, a huge year last year after really ramping up his slider usage. And I've seen some people say, man, can you really just throw sliders that much like half the time and and stay healthy? And he did have sort of a, a strange patch of the season last year where his velocity dipped significantly, even though he was still effective. And, and then it kind of came back mysteriously too. So was there any concern about committing long-term to someone who pitches that way? So, I mean, the, the front office would say no, because we've you know they've done their evaluations and they see him as ascendant rather than descendant. He is he is a little bit younger for a free agent pitcher you know, by a year, but I think those are reasonable questions. Why the inconsistency? Not just over the course of his career, but but even in his best year, his walk year last year. And then what does that slider usage mean? Is it is it as I just described with Scherzer? You know, adding a pitch to the arsenal as you're becoming a free agent. Um, and being able to use it maturely, that could be a huge asset if it has, you know, implications for your health. And Steven Strasburg is somebody in this organization who one year said, well, I think the reason that I got hurt was because I, I started using my slider too much and I'm going to ramp that back. I think Corbin is a big TBD. If he is 2018 Patrick Corbin, then, you know, wow, what a what a one, two, three at the front of the rotation they have. But there's there's a reason not everybody was willing to go uh, a sixth year on him. The Nationals are, you know, if you want to say they're rolling the dice, I think that's fair. I think they they would say our evaluation of not just who the pitcher was, but who the pitcher will be says that we got a got a fair deal. But I'm I'm very intrigued to see what they get over whatever it is, 30, 32 starts from Patrick Corbin, who, I mean, I think everybody would kind of admit most, most places would not be the number three starter and here is pretty clearly the number three starter so i will ask you a question about covering sean doolittle who is mm-hmm. a, a good pitcher but uh almost an afterthought that he is a pitcher at this point because he just seems to play such an important role in setting the conversation around baseball particularly among players and he just wrote a, a piece for your paper as it happens yes. and i, I wonder does it feel strange to to ask Sean Doolittle about just like mundane questions like, uh, hey, what were you trying to throw there or, or something when he's out here kind of advocating for cap makers or, you know, talking about baseball's economic system and bringing attention to all of this stuff? Have, have you kind of watched him evolve as he continues to embrace this role? Well, I mean, I think he was kind of taking huge strides toward that role in Oakland, which is probably a perfect place, a perfect incubator if you're going to be kind of a, mm-hmm. a woke baseball player right um and and obviously he's involved his his then fiance and now now wife Aaron Dolan as well um mm-hmm. as kind of being the progressive voices of of baseball um the thing about Doolittle is he's he's essentially engaging on whatever you want to engage him on you know I talked to him one time over the winter and he lives in Chicago over in the winter time and, and it was during that time when it was um you know, whatever it was, 40 below zero, quite literally. And I just said, I got I can't not talk to somebody in Chicago and ask you what it's like, you know, out there. And, you know, eight minutes later, I had a very good understanding of what it's like to be in, in 40 degree below zero weather, because Sean Doolittle is so good at explaining whatever it is he wants to explain. That includes baseball. Mm-hmm. He was hurt so much last year. And that was a big reason for that things kind of fell apart for the Nats. You might remember a Sunday night game in Chicago that was a walk-off grand slam for the Cubs. That might I'm convinced that if they win that game, they may go to the playoffs. And if Sean Doolittle was healthy, they they would have won that game. But 
if you want to talk to him about baseball and how he gets that high fastball past hitters and he he's equally engaging on that he's also an important part of this year's team they have an option for him next year so uh, you would think he would be kind of a fixture here by the end of his by the end of his stay just a really thoughtful thoughtful person but also thoughtful baseball player as well yeah i'll be curious to see you know how much this is dependent on his performance like you always hear that in baseball you you can't be outspoken unless you're like actually performing on the field or at least that if you are no one will pay that much attention so if he gets hurt or if he declines as a pitcher will that affect his platform at all one would hope not because he is such a a pivotal voice here so i'll i'll be curious to see how that evolves but obviously when he's throwing you know 1.6 eras up there that's uh not really a concern and, and hopefully at this point he's sort of established himself as a a go-to source for all of this regardless of how he's actually performing so uh, i did want to ask you I, I don't know whether there was officially resolution to the masson dispute that has been dragging on for years. I, I heard at one point that it was supposed to be resolved over the winter, and then I don't think I actually heard whether it was. So I, I wonder whether you know what the status of that is or whether it is having any impact on the nationals. So this, if you want to talk about a subject that makes my head hurt and has made my <laughs> yeah. head hurt for, for <laughs> probably 12 years, you're right. There was supposed to be an arbitration decision earlier in the year because the thing has been you know, has gone back and forth between how is this going to be decided. There was some optimism that that was happening around some owners meetings. And I'm fumbling because I'm trying to find exactly where it was. It was in Atlanta. And it, it didn't it didn't happen. It didn't come to a resolution. The two sides argued in November, what was supposed to be their their final arguments before it went to arbitration. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to I'm not going to say I know more about it than than that. This has been to me, it's been fairly opaque throughout the process, and that goes back again more than a decade. But I would also say this, and and I'm interested in it getting resolved for a couple reasons. I mean, the Nationals obviously argue that their revenue streams have been limited because they haven't gotten the full uh, share of what their TV rights fees should be, and that, in fact, if they did get those fees, that it would fundamentally change the way they, they run their business. Um, Ed Cohen, who's uh, son-in-law of of Ted Lerner, the patriarch of the Lerner family that owns the Nationals, made in legal arguments, I think it was two off-seasons ago, maybe it was three now, the argument that because they didn't have their full revenue stream, it was limiting their pursuit of free agents and limiting the way that they could construct their roster. I'm not, uh, even if it does get resolved and the Nationals do have what they consider to be their their full um, revenue stream intact, in I'm not convinced that the Nationals wouldn't run their business the, the way that they run it now, even if they were taking more money in. And as, as we know from the Harper saga, um, their way of running running their business is to create contracts that have a lot of deferred money in it so that they can invest the money that they are saving on the front end and and um, don't have to pay, kind of kick the can down the road on, on paying out salaries. So that's a long-winded way of saying I have no idea what's going on right at the moment, but it, uh, I'm really curious to see if, if it gets resolved, does it change how the Nats do business? They have uh, said this offseason that they're not going to go over the luxury tax threshold. I've seen some estimates that they're about $5 million under, some that they're about $10 million under. And the division they're in now, 
with four really good teams, four teams that look like they're all potentially 90-win teams, seems like it would have a, a real effect on all four teams that it would create a, a kind of a race between them a, an urgency to everything the way that we have sometimes seen in like the AL East and so I am curious whether that is a uh, a true I mean as the season goes on are they willing to blow past it do you think that's a factor are they you know particularly eager to win this division well yeah it the dynamic in the division is unlike any in baseball, right? There's, I, I don't think there are, I mean, if the new market inefficiency is trying, I don't think there are, you know, four teams in another division that are kind of as all in as the Nationals, Phillies, uh, Mets, and Braves are. I would say that if past this prologue here, there's never been an, a, a trade deadline when Mike Rizzo hasn't been allowed to go and, and get a piece. Maybe it hasn't been the splashiest thing. He didn't, they didn't get Araldis Chapman in 2016. The Cubs did, and they won the World Series. But he added, you know, Doolittle and Madsen. He's added Papelbon. Not that that worked out very well. He's added as Dribble Cabrera. He's he's. They have made midseason additions when it served, you know, when they were trying to fight for a division title. In most of those deals, they have gotten the other side to pay at least some of the salary. Um, that can still happen because, you know, when you have just two months remaining on a player, you know, would they be able to add a $12 million player, someone that would put them over the luxury tax? I'm not sure, but he hasn't had those he hasn't had real restrictions in terms of making the team better in, in the past. I You know, the luxury tax, I think, is in general so overblown just because, you, you know, you're taxed on the overage. And if you can reset it, it's not killing you every year. Obviously, they didn't reset it last year. So that's that has an impact. I, I would say that, you know, kind of broadly, if Mike Rizzo has an opportunity to improve the team at the deadline because they're in a race, ownership would allow him to go improve the, the team at the deadline. Maybe not completely irrespective of the of the luxury tax threshold, but not that it would hinder the development or the, or the pursuit of a, of a division title. So speaking of that division title, we always end these previous segments by asking our guest for a win total prediction wow. for 2019. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, but we, uh, we are obligated to, or at least we obligate our guests to. So that's a tough question for this team in this division, because even if you think the Nationals are the best team in the NL East, it's still hard to come up with a number just because this division is going to be so good and so close. And I'm really looking forward to it. So what do you think it takes to win this division? And, and what do you think the Nationals end up with? Boy, that is such a, a hard one because, if you know, say you go back to those old AL East days of whatever, the 03 to 07 Yankee mm -hmm. Red Sox things and, and those teams that seemed like they won 95 games every year. And, and they, but they had for a lot of that time, three teams to really beat up on like if they if they went 10 and 9 against each other they could really beat up on some lousy Oriole Tampa and, and Toronto teams this dynamic is a little different I mean I guess everybody has to go 17 and 2 against the Marlins right and and then um right. and then kind of try to get the edge on each of the other contenders I'm not completely sold on the Mets so I think you could maybe um make some headway there obviously so much depends for them on their um on their rotations health and if it's healthy then then they could be quite good I kind of feel like this is they won 82 games last year the Nationals did it was a completely underwhelming year in so many ways 
They haven't had two back-to-back clunkers since the time they became division contenders in 2012. Um, That's a pretty good uh, sample size going back. So I'm thinking, you know, 91 wins, 92 wins. And given the competition in the division, and if if you kind of think that those teams will beat up each other, wouldn't 92 get you the division title? It it may. I say that with a lot of trepidation because it'll be so interesting to see, you know, the impact of Harper in, in Philly and can the Braves do it again? And then can the Nationals bounce back and, and are the Mets for real? I mean, the, to me, it's the most intriguing division in baseball by far. And I'll, I'll put the Nats down for 92 wins. All right. Well, you can follow and read Barry all season long. He does some of the best literary and behind-the-scenes reporting and writing about the Nationals, and he is on Twitter at his name, Barry Sverluga. You can also read his book, The Grind, Inside Baseball's Endless Season, which would be a good book to read now before The Grind begins. It is a very good book, too. I would just like to say that is a very good book. (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) Well, thank you, Barry. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay, so we'll take one more quick break now, and we'll be back with Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times to talk about the Mariners. There'll be another curtain call, a spacesuit in the trophy room, and I won't be surprised at all when Ichiro goes, Ichiro goes to the moon. When Ichiro goes, Ichiro goes to the moon. When Ichiro goes, Ichiro goes to the moon. Okay, so we are back, and we are joined by Ryan Divish, who covers the Mariners for the Seattle Times. Hey, Ryan. What's up, guys? I wanted to ask you a, a big-picture question about the Mariners offseason. For anyone who hasn't followed it in great detail and is wondering why the Mariners did what they did and tore down their roster after winning 89 games last season, why did the Mariners decide to do that? Basically, um, they just didn't believe that the team that they had coming back with the team that won 89 wins – yeah, and maybe the minimal piece that they could sign in the offseason was going to be good enough to compete for nothing more than a second wild card spot. So they finally did a reassessment of what they were, where the roster was at, and just decided, look, this isn't going to work. I mean, if you look at where the Astros are, the Red Sox, the Yankees, maybe lesser extent the Indians, and even the Oakland A's, they just knew that from a talent standpoint, they didn't match up very well in terms of depth. They were getting older. Uh, defensively, they weren't very good. So they just kind of said, look, maybe it's time to capitalize on um, some value here, particularly Mike Zanino and James Paxton, who were, you know, second year of arbitration eligibility. They didn't want to have just the one year when they traded him before free agency. They wanted to maximize the two years. They felt like the value was highest then. So that's what they just tried to capitalize on a market and think, let's let's just kind of go. And I think they realized, too, that the 89 wins that they got last year were, I mean, there's a huge amount of luck involved. They won, I don't know how many one-run games. Uh, you know, you had a, a historic year from Edwin Diaz, which I think they knew they were never going to get again. So they just kind of said all this stuff came together and it worked out perfectly and they still didn't even make the postseason. So maybe it was time to reassess. It's something they've never truly done since I've been covering the team since 2006. It's interesting because if you were like if you were in your therapist's office and uh, they, you know, they were showing you uh, depth charts like uh you know, like ink blots, and you just had to look at them real quick and react. You would look at the Mariners, and you would not say tear down team. You wouldn't say rebuild team. I mean, if you do the math, you realize, oh, that's a pretty bad team. But it's not a young team. It's not an anonymous team. You don't have to, 
you know, try to find the names you recognize. It looks like a team that's trying. So clearly they this step back is is different than a rebuild, and it's certainly much different than a, a teardown. And so why do you suppose that this is the outcome that they chose to have for the for the end of the off uh, you know for the end of the winter? Yeah. First of all, I don't know if you guys have been checking in on my therapist, but yeah, that's what we do is look at ink blots of Jerry Depoto's roster mm-hmm. and trades. And then how does this make you feel? Yeah. It, it's weird. Like if you look at what they're going to have this year, their payroll is going to be about 170 million uh, because of money that they still have left on the books. And then, you know, some retained money. And, and yeah, if you look at the roster, I mean, it's when you think of teardown, you think of a bunch of really kind of quad a players or guys that aren't making very much money just going out and losing every game. But uh, given what they had coming back and they had to take on some money to get some of these rid of some of these contracts. So they picked up some veterans along the way. That's, it just kind of looks odd. It's not a complete teardown. I think that's why they, they kind of looked at it as they felt like with a couple guys that they had in place that were younger, uh, they could still be uh, a viable team in three years. I mean, this is what their step back is. And I think they use the Brewers model a little bit, uh, or they're hoping the Brewers model was like, if they can just, you know, eat it for this year and, and get a bunch of money off. And then in two years when their projected payroll only has 42 million in guaranteed contracts, then they can readjust, you know, right? Like right now there's 170 million next year will be about 80 million. And the year after that'll be 40 million. That's when they feel like they can do that. So they went and just kind of felt like they're going to have to have it this year and then they can move on. And I, I obviously they're going to try and trade a bunch of these guys at the deadline too, if they can. The other thing is that the prospects that they got back, by and large, are, are mostly advanced prospects, and uh, a number of them are, are going to really debut this year, probably. Is that intentional? Is that sort of part of the making this a short transition, or were those just the guys they liked? No, that's a big part of it is like, look, they, they wanted some, you know, the projectable low A guy or whatever. They'll, they'll take one of those like Jared uh, Kalanick, the guy they got from the Mets. He was the big piece, but they wanted guys in a grouping that could really debut maybe this year or in the beginning of next year. And then if you look at 2021 be you know established major league players and have a core group of guys you know you saw that with the royals when they had that group of guys all kind of come up together and play together that's what they're hoping is that like justice sheffield shed long kyle lewis evan white even this jake fraley kid they all kind of come up together justin dunn they all come up together they're all part of this team and they join mitch hanniger and marco gonzalez so they have a, a core group of guys that are about 25 24 to 27 that are all playing together at the same time and that's what they're hoping for, ideally. And then if they have all those pieces together and none of them are making much money, and that's a big part of your roster, you can go out and supplement with some free agents and, and kind of build around that group. Mariners are playing real baseball games that count very soon. Next week, they're going to Japan for the series against the A's. So how does that disrupt the rhythm of spring training? Does that force guys to get ready more quickly? Did they have to do something different because of that? Do they have to make roster decisions sooner because of this series? Yeah, they, they do. They, they, the pitching has really kind of been speeded up a little bit. You know, they just kind of were getting into live BP and then games a little bit quicker. Players as well, you know, you're starting to see players for the Mariners starting to get four at-bats in a game instead of, you know, just two and being done. So they, there isn't that slow play. There's a little urgency. But I think that they their message has kind of been to the players, look, these are two games, they're regular season games, and yes, they count, but don't overthink it. Still prepare for when you really open the season on March 28th. Uh, they're going to have to make some roster decisions. They get to take 20, they get to have 28 men on the active roster when they're in Japan. 25 are eligible for the game, but they have 28 guys on the active roster. They'll take about 30 because they play two exhibition games. But, you know, they have some decisions to make at first base. 
they have a 45-year-old outfielder that's going to be on the active roster for those games and what happens after that. So all those things will be decided. But yeah, 28 guys, and they'll have to make the decision sometime this week. You were covering them when they played, uh, when they opened the season in Japan against the A's in, what, 2012, 2011, 2010? Uh, what year was that? Anyway, how much do players dislike doing this? And is it the sort of thing where it starts the season on a kind of a negative foot or do they, you know, kind of dig it? I think they enjoy it because it's kind of like a trip of a lifetime. You know, some guys would never probably think of doing this. So they get to go do it and, some, you know, somebody else is paying for it, you know, and you bring their wives and everything like that. But at the same time, I think they know it messes with their season, their body clocks a little bit, all that kind of stuff. You know, the last time when they went to Japan, which was weird, it was a little bit earlier. And then they came back and they went back to spring training and played like back to Arizona and just played games and did workouts down here. This time they're going back to Seattle when they get done with those games and they'll play two exhibition games against the Padres. But they did, the players hated that, like coming back to spring training after they'd left and played and then doing all that stuff. They're, they're much happier about just going to Seattle and playing up there and working out up there. So I think that part makes sense. But you know, I, you know, some of the guys are complaining about sleep and are worried about sleep and how they're going to feel and jet lag. And, you know, Mitch Hanniger, who's kind of a cyborg, already did a trip to Japan. So he's trying to tell everybody what it's going to be like. But I think for the most part, they, they think it's a good deal. Service, man, Scott Service thinks it's going to be a bonding thing for teammates. You know, he's really embraced all this stuff. So who knows? I, I'm curious to see what it's like. I, you know, my biggest thing is, is, is you're going to play two games, you'll have an idea of what their their team's going to look like, and then they have to adjust the roster completely once they get back. So we should talk about that 45-year-old outfielder. I know that he <laughs> is perpetually in the best shape of his life, physically speaking. Has he looked good otherwise, and how do you expect them and him to handle the aftermath of that series? I mean, I think he's... You know, he... He looks like a 45-year-old out there playing. I mean, he's in great shape and, and everything. But, like, you watch him play. The bat speed's pretty slow. He doesn't run like he used to. You know, he's got a lot of gray hair. You know, they, they – so last year when they brought him on, which I thought was a mistake in the first place, they signed him that deal. Ben Gamble had gotten hurt, and they needed an outfielder, so they brought him on. And then, you know, you knew that there was going to be a roster issue. And there was. And so they kept him on a little bit longer because they had this contract. He had to be on through the month to the May 1st, the way the contract set up. And then they gave him this weird job of assistant to the chairman where he basically wore a uniform, traveled, went to every game, took BP, took fly balls, did all the workouts, looked like a regular player. And then when games come on, he couldn't be in the dugout. He'd just sit in the cages and hit or lift weights. And then when the game was over, if they won, he'd be the first guy out of the tunnel to shake hands with the players. It was totally absurd. Like we've got every city and all these writers would be like, what is this guy doing? He's like the opposite of Allen Iverson. We're talking about practice here, not a game. That's all we were talking about for him. Kind of reminds me of like when I went from grammar school to high school, both of my schools were within like a five block radius and I missed my school because I had been there for 10 years. And so after high school, it was like as a freshman, I would just kind of like wander back over to my grammar school because my teachers were still there and and I missed them and I kind of liked being around there. And it was just kind of like, what is this kid going to leave? He graduated already. (laughs) And I was just kind of hanging around there for a while. It's probably sort of sad. Speaking of conversations, we have with our therapists <laughs> yeah exactly i did the same thing with college i mean like hey graduate i, I think the dean of our journalism school i knew like we had this senior seminar class and i was like 
I got a B in that class. And, and I said, no, the dean, I'm like, I didn't do B work. He goes, you barely did F work, but we were tired of you being around here. So go get a real job. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I have not maybe been following this as closely as I should have been or not, but I have kind of always been unclear about what is happening with Ichiro after this series. Is 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 it conclusive? Is it like he's going to... So what's, what is going on, dude? Like, what's going to happen with Ichiro? <laughs> so like when, when he did this, when he took this new role last year within the front office, they, they had a handshake agreement that they were going to bring him back uh, on a minor league deal to camp this year and give him a chance to go to Japan on playing those games. It was like, you know, well, we can, with 28 guys on a roster, you can reward the guy. But then they've never said what's going to happen after that, whether they're going to, you know, obviously you don't think he's going to be a viable player on the 25-man roster every day, you know, being a part of your team. When you're trying to get younger, that's not usually what you do is keep the 45-year-old dude. So I, I don't know. Like, we ask him if he's going to retire. He won't discuss it. I mean, there is an assumption that he'll announce his retirement you know, either at the end of the Japan series or sometime before the Mariners play the Red Sox on March 28th, like in some time there, he could announce his retirement. Maybe they give him back his front office job and he continues to practice and hang out. I have no idea. Like nobody really knows and he won't talk about it. And, and you know, he said he doesn't want to wear another uniform for another team. So my assumption is he's going to retire. My, my one goal is, is whether I made a bet with one of the guys that, that he'll be on the roster for uh, a day after, like at least one game after the Japan series. And the bet is for this really good barbecue place in, in <laughs> Seattle. So I just need, like if Malik Smith maybe has a little setback with his elbow or something and Ichiro can be on that roster for one more game or even a ceremonial one more game, I'm eating $30 worth of brisket at this Jack's Barbecue in Seattle. Yeah, it's a lot riding on this for you. Yes. So you mentioned Malik Smith. I was going to ask about him from the 45-year-old outfielder to the 25-year-old outfielder. He is coming off a really good season, and I think that surprised a lot of people because he had not hit in the couple partial years before that. He hit two homers in 544 plate appearances, not a power guy, but he managed to bat 296 because he had a 366 BABIP. And so is that something that he can keep doing? He's obviously a, a speedy guy. So is that just a skill now or is there some regression coming here? I, I mean, like common sense, there has to be regression that, that a BABIP like that is unsustainable. You know, they like the on-base percentage a little bit. I mean, given what they had last year in terms of on-base percentage, when you had four guys in their order in a row that had sub-300 on-base percentages, you'll take anybody that's north of 330. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, he did it playing indoors. You know, it's not like the tra the turf in Tampa is, is faster, but you go to Safeco. You know, I don't know if that works or not. They, they seem to think because of the bigger outfield that maybe he gets more hits. And, and then from a defensive standpoint, he's not great either uh, in terms of if you look at some of his metrics and everything else and just watching him, he gets kind of awkward jumps. He makes up for it because he's got a lot of speed, but he's not a, a really clean center fielder. So I, I don't know. I was surprised about that deal. They really like him for whatever reason. Like, you know, they, they had him. They, they had him for about 77 minutes and traded him to the, to the Rays when they were doing the Drew Smiley trade a couple of years ago. And then, like, apparently since the time they traded him, they tried to trade for him back. And so now they got him for Zanino. I, I don't know. I, I understand kind of the thinking. But, yeah, if you look at all the numbers, it, it says that that's not going to – he's not going to replicate that. And now with this season, he's, he, has, he just started swinging a bat. He came into camp with an injured elbow. He injured it while trying to build up arm strength. And so he hasn't done anything all camp. So I, I just – 
it was a weird trade for me of the of all the trades that Jerry made in the off season. I thought that was one of the weirder ones, but Tampa had the most interest in Zanino of all the other teams. So I think that's kind of where they went and that was the guy they wanted because it's you know Smith wasn't going to play if you look at the way that the Rays outfield sets up he was only going to be a fourth outfielder anyways so I, it was kind of an odd deal I'm I'm you know I haven't seen him play enough but like when I we were watching him play last year I never thought wow this guy is an everyday guy or this guy's a difference maker I thought he was a nice fourth outfielder so that kind of raises a question that I've had uh, about Jerry Depoto's trading tendencies and this is a big question that you don't probably you won't have it I mean you it would take a lot of work to figure out an answer to this but I'm just wondering what your sense is there's kind of two ways that you can think about this hyperactive trading one is the red paperclip theory where if you just win each trade by like a, a tiny bit eventually you've turned your your red paperclip into a red ferrari and and everybody's you know impressed you found all these little little um opportunities and they added up to something something great but an, another one which i think we've talked about on this show before and i think i maybe have written about in the opposite sense with with the giants is the idea of a transaction cost with every trade and and in real life uh it's like if you you know buy a house You've got to like get title insurance and you've got to like get inspections and there's all these extra little costs that you aren't thinking about on the the bottom line or you've got to like pay sales tax or you've you know you whatever you just end up with something actually slightly more expensive than the the ticket price and so for baseball players that might be a, a lack of stability they might be constantly having to start over or you might have bad um, you know, bad chemistry or, or no cohesiveness with the coaching plan, or you end up with a player that doesn't quite fit what you're doing because he was, you know, the player who was available from the team that most wanted your catcher at that moment. And so you end up, even though you might think you're winning every trade by a little, you're losing every trade by a little. Do you have any kind of sense, having watched the last two years, of which way it's breaking for the Mariners? I mean, like the transactional cost, because a lot of times these aren't one-for-one -one trades, and you'll put in a, you know, early on, he was throwing in a lot of low-level, uh, projectable arms from Latin America, and, you know, and some of these guys have panned out. I mean, Pablo Lopez, Freddy Peralta, all these guys have gotten to the big leagues. Meanwhile, the Mariners have had a total lack of pitching depth in their organization over the years because a lot of these guys that he moved as minor pieces in these trades ended up being something, you know, people point to moving Luis Cohara and stuff, but you know, there is a value in having a number four or five starter that, that, you know, you can turn to that is club controlled instead of having to piece it together with a veteran on a one-year deal, you know? So, yeah, I think there is that. I, I think, you know, with Jerry, what he does is he identifies players he wants or identifies a, a concept that he wants. And then he just goes and does it and just says, look, this is how we're going to make it work. If you want to go with me on this trade, we'll do it. If not, I'll move on and find somebody else will. And so I, it's hard. I mean, it, it's like if you do, though, like you're saying, you, you move all these pieces and you're trading, you're taking from one spot in your organization and to fill another spot. You're still going to have to eventually get the spot you're taking from. And I think that's that's what's affected him a little bit is that the perceived depth of the organization took a little hit because a lot of the younger guys he was trading, uh, some of them were decent players. Uh, and, and then, you know, it, it just seems like they've, they've tried to piece it together uh, around guys that, that he inherited and I don't know that necessarily wanted. So I, this is his big chance now. It's like, look, you've had to retool your roster several times. 
but this is a way for you to build your roster the way you want. You better not screw it up. And then that's kind of what, you know, our season preview is, is just look, this, what is this step back? When was the decision made and how is this going to work? I mean, you're putting a lot of faith in, in DePoto uh, to do this. And, you know, if you look at his past history, he's never done this at anywhere he's been. And so how, why is this going to work? And will they kind of fix all these things that have gone wrong in the past? And, and for DePoto, it's also just about, you know, he didn't he didn't draft well in Anaheim. They didn't build anything. And can he do that here? And so I don't know. I mean, like at some point you just wonder if you're just you're just making trades for the sake of making trades to continue to readjust a roster that you never seem to to will fit. You know, it's like that one guy in your roto league that just has to make a trade just because he has to tinker with everything. Whereas like if you just waited a week, maybe the guy, the player that you're trying to deal or the thing you react to figures itself out. I mean, that's what I kind of wonder about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the other transaction costs is your own kind of bias as a, as a, as a deal maker, you might fall in love with the thing you're acquiring and overvalue it. Yeah. That's Daniel Vogelbach in, in a lot of senses, like for DePoto, you know, you trade for Daniel Vogelbach and, and he's an imperfect player. And does he do the, like some GMs, like once you decide whether or not this guy is what he is, they'll move on, you know, and say, look, this is who he is. We either go with it or we don't. But like with DePoto, he's invested two and a half seasons in Daniel Vogelbach, trying to make him into a competent first baseman, trying to see, you know, trying to get a swing right so he can be a big league player. But they yet they've never given him a chance. Now, like you look at this year, they're going to have a first base situation where they have Jay Bruce, first base DHs, where they have Jay Bruce, Edwin Encarnacion, Ryan Healy, and Daniel Vogelbach. You know, one of those guys is going to have to come off the roster. It'll probably be Healy because he has options. But you're sending a guy that's very going to be legitimately pissed off for having to go back to AAA after being your everyday first baseman last year because you've built a roster that Vogelbach doesn't have options and you need to give him a chance and you're afraid to lose him on a waiver claim because you also have inherent – you have value, uh, an increased value because he's your guy you traded for. You know, you want to make sure that this you know, proves you, that you're right, that you, this trade that we made has value even though for two years it hasn't given you what you expected. So one of the one of the general rules of thumb in baseball is that a, a GM gets about five years, you know, barring anything crazy one way or the other, gets about five years to to impart his vision and and has you know, relative job security for those five years. But Jerry came in and so immediately remade the roster so that it would you know had his stamp on it. it. It wasn't within like a year. It wasn't like he had a an inherited roster, but really one he'd actively gone after. And then another kind of rule of thumb that I think some of us uh, have thought of a little bit cynically is that a, uh, the best thing a GM can do sometimes for his job security is to tear down and embark on the process. And then you get like four years where you can just keep telling your bosses, we're supposed to be bad. This is what I'm trying to do. Uh, and they are stepping back, but not doing the full tear down. Do you feel like this has kind of, I, I'm kind of, well, I guess the question is what sort of job security do you feel like Jerry DePoto and, and his his staff have right now? And does this step back do anything to to strengthen that job security? Or or is it kind of a not, is it not effective in that sense because of the way that they're doing it? No, I think it's got to strengthen it on some level. Uh, what's weird is, so last season, going in spring and stuff, I felt like he was a little on edge. You know, Jerry's very gregarious, very open, very available to the media. But, you know, last spring, it just felt like he was kind of 
we just didn't get him as much. He wasn't around. He wasn't as interactive. And I think he didn't have a contract extension. He was going into the final year of his deal. I think he felt like he want, he should have been extended. He, he hadn't been extended yet. So I think there was a, there was a little edge to him about that. And then, you know, they go out and they have that amazing start where they're, they're playing and they're winning all these one run games. The run differential is trash, but they're still winning games. And, and they, they have like a 12 or 13 game lead on the wild card at one point. And that's when they got extended. You know, they, he, he got extended. I think it was funny is like they, their fade from the, the postseason started about the weekend after he got extended. But so he gets extended for three. I, I assume it's three years. We've never got the deal. I, my sources say it's three years. Uh, and then they extend Scott's service after that. And then, so you, you, I think the perception was that they extended him as a reward for the good season that they were having. And then all of a sudden, you know, after you extend him, his plan is to, to, to fade, you know, to tear it down, not necessarily tear it down, but to do the step back. And does that add more job security? I guess. But I mean, it's the Mariners. You never really know what they're going to do with GMs. I mean, realistically, they allow Bill Bavese to stay two extra years past when he should have, and the same with Jack Sorensic. So, I don't know if it, it logically it has to buy him some because you're like, they know that, you know, the ownership knows that they're not going to be very good this year and there's a chance they won't be very good next year and that they're really hoping for 2021 as like that year to, you could see it. But I mean, like if some of these trades don't work, like maybe they look at it, but I think it's bottom at least two years. I think it's bottom till that 2021 season to see what that team looks like that he's been, you know, saying they're projecting for what that looks like when it walks onto the field. And, and if that, if it's in place, then, you know, if you have guys that are contributing, you know, Kyle Lewis is in right field or, or in left field and you have Evan White at first base. And then, you know, and more importantly for them, Julio Rodriguez and Jerry Kellenick are at double A AA or triple A just inching to get on the field. Then, okay. Yeah, you've done it. But if all these, if these guys start to wash out or if they get hurt and you're not seeing that and you're looking more like in 2021 that you're going to be a hundred loss team, then of course I think that you, they'd have to probably, you know, move on from him then. So this is probably going to be the only time in this series that we ask uh, who's going to be the opening day starter question because it's normally just not that interesting a question. But in the Mariners case, it kind of is because you have Felix Hernandez entering his last year under contract. He has started 10 consecutive opening days and 11 of the last 12. And so whether he gets the honor here kind of tells you a little bit about how he might be handled this year because, of course, he was in the bullpen for a while last year. So... How do you think that is going to go? And generally, what do you think Felix's last season is going to be like? Is it going to be sort of a, a sad ending to his Mariners career? Or can this wrap up, and I don't know, in a, a nice sentimental way somehow? Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's going to start in Japan. And I don't even know if he would start like the home opener. Like, you know, you could placate it by starting Marco Gonzalez in Japan and then starting Felix at home and say, hey, look, we want to start you at home. He cares about that streak. When he didn't start that one year in 2008 and they started Eric Bedard, who didn't want to start on opening day and didn't want that attention, like Felix was pouting about that for about a month, month and a half. And, you know, just was bitter. Uh, never forgave John McLaren, the manager at the time, for doing that. Just was held it against him. So, yeah, th- but I mean, we were discussing this the other day, like some writers around beers, like, does he, he has to know he's not starting on opening day, right? And we're kind of like, yeah, maybe he doesn't because, you know, one thing about star athletes is they're blissfully unaware about things going on around them, you know. And so I, I, I'm i assuming Marco Gonzalez starts game one and you say Kikuchi starts game two. Felix, I don't know. And the one thing is, is like 
the cachet that Felix had with his, within this organization and all that he's done, and he's done a lot, and he stayed here, and he wanted to stay here. That's run out largely because Scott Service, the manager, and Jerry Depoto, the GM, they've never seen him good for an extended period. Like when, if you think about when they take over, when they took over, that was when Felix just started to decline at a rapid rate. The injuries, the lack of command, his mechanical issues, they all just kind of kept going and, and they became frustrated because Felix is so stubborn and unwilling to kind of address the issues that they could see were a problem. You know, he just kind of wanted to do it his own way. And so they, they just don't have that, that bond that maybe a past GM would have, you know, because of they were there when the King Felix years were good. These guys have never seen it. And, you know, Felix doesn't like these guys, you know, after he got sent to the bullpen last year, which I felt was totally deserved, you know, they're trying to, they're, they're still in a postseason race. And every fifth day he was their worst pitcher. They would send out there and, and would just kill your, their bullpen. You know, it was deserved, but he, he didn't think so. And he was upset at them. And, you know, there was like minimal contact between the two sides in the off season. You know, they, I think both sides have just realized that this is the last year and that for all intents and purposes, it's best that they move on from each other. Uh, what's going to be weird is, is if he's terrible again, like he was last year to start the season and Justice Sheffield is in AAA and pitching really well and you have this plan to start building these guys up what what purpose is it to do is to to continue to put Felix out there when you have a guy that could benefit from pitching in these big league games it's a big part of your future you know why wouldn't you bring him up they're they're coming towards a move and i mean it could happen as soon as may 1st you know did they just bury felix in the bullpen as a long reliever would he cause waves by doing that do they just dfa a guy that you know has been meant so much to the organization i mean i've written a ton of words on this and and it's it's weird is like the frustration it's the perception of felix and everybody loves him because he stayed and he was so great for so long but there's a shift amongst fans uh, on the frustration level because the guy's making so much money he just hasn't gotten better and and you know and i think depoto and service have kind of put it out there and and it was kind of known as it just he just doesn't work at it the way a lot of guys do you know he's not like verlander or jake arietti or these older pitchers that that spend a lot of time conditioning a lot of time um, in the offseason preparing for this that he's always been a guy that could just throw his glove on the field and walk out there and be the best guy on pure talent alone well you know when you're 31 years old and you've thrown a gajillion innings that stuff starts to fade and it's how do you react and he hasn't reacted well and they've been frustrated by frustrated by that reaction because he doesn't really you know take to coaching in that regard so it, it's there's going to be a split and it, it i can't imagine it'll be amicable I, mean, I think whether they dfa him or they bury him in the bullpen it's just going to be it'll get ugly I, i'm almost certain of it because I, I, I just have not seen anything that says to me that he can go out and be like a replacement level pitcher. And then if he was, I mean, like if he went out and he was like a, you know, putting up numbers to project at a one war or two war, they would move him and eat a good portion of the money, but they would move him as a way to get, you know, reward him and then just be able to move on and start pitching their younger guys. That is unfathomably bleak. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I've seen him at his greatest, you know, and I, you know, in the past, it was just, you did not miss a start when he was pitching, you know, you set up your stuff you know, I remember telling my one buddy that was like the other backup writer. I was like, "Look, you're getting the Jason Vargas starts because I ain't missing Felix. You can talk to Jason Vargas post game, but I'm not missing Felix." And you know, he, he was a fascinating guy. You know, I've written 
so many words on him. And this last year and a half writing about last, it's basically like last year and a half and really last year writing these stories about this guy, just knowing that or seeing that on a move to the bullpen or a removal from the rotation was coming and him not seeing it himself. And then also just like his, he, he just, you could see an athlete that was searching for something that was never going to be found and not understanding why, like everything he'd been so good at before and had been so easy for him became so hard and he didn't know how to react to it and he didn't know what to do. And it was really, you know, fascinating to watch, but also kind of depressing because it just, it reminds you of your own mortality a lot and his athletic, you know, he was, he saw his own athletic mortality, his baseball mortality, just kind of become right into the forefront and become very real that, like he's only got a finite amount of time to do this going forward. I could ask, uh, I mean, I could ask about a million more questions about the kind of social and emotional state of the Mariners at this point. But I'm instead going to ask just one last question about the uh, man that you named as uh, the person who could displace Felix from the rotation, Justice Sheffield. And Sheffield has been a prospect, it seems like, forever. And uh, during that entire time, it's always been somewhat controversial whether he's a going to ultimately be a starter or a reliever. The Yankees did not seem to be that committed to the idea of him as a starter. And I am somewhat curious how much the Mariners feel or might, without thinking about it this way, but might feel that he needs to make it as a starter in order to win the Paxton trade, which is not ultimately a question that matters at all, except in as much as it might demonstrate their commitment to him as a starter through thick and thin. So how, I don't know, I guess the question is, how close do you think he is to, um, you know, to, I don't know, how, how long is his leash or what does he have to do to stay in that role? I think, you know, given what they gave up for him, uh, you know, given where they're where they're at from an organizational standpoint in terms of starting pitching depth they're going to let him be a starter until they absolutely think he can't do it anymore they'll give him every opportunity i think with the way he came in this year and the advanced work that he'd done on his changeup they feel like that's made a, a huge difference you know that his third pitch is a little bit more viable I think, you know, there's still biggest concern and they're really trying to get with him. What, what, one of the biggest deficiencies is just efficiency within the strike zone and, and throwing strikes, you know, and kind of that wandering command with the fastball. They're really trying to clean that up. But yeah, I think that they'll stay with him as long as possible. It was a similar thing with Justin Dunn, the guy they got from the Mets. You know, immediately they were saying there was whispers that, oh, well, they're going to convert him to a reliever because the, his stuff will tick up. But then when they got him down here, some of the guys that were saying that, like, no, we're going to keep him as a starter. We like what we've seen as him as a starter. So I, I can't imagine they would do that to Sheffield early, simply in the fact that they they don't they, – they have time to kind of play with that. You know, you have basically have two seasons of Sheffield to understand whether or not he can handle being a starter uh, and go from there. You know, if, if in two seasons, you know, if in 2019 – because I my guess is he'll make 15 starts at the big league level in 20 this season – and then, you know, a full season in 2020, if by then they that hasn't come to fruition, that it just isn't projecting, then they make that that switch because then you're farther down the road in this step back process. And then you can adjust, you know, you'll have money, you can adjust your 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 thinking, you know, you can go out and trade for a prospect or whatever. You can do that differently, but they have to kind of wait it out and see. And it is a perception deal like this was the. You know, this was the big deal. You, you gave up your best starting pitcher. You better get a starting pitcher in return. And so, and they don't really have anybody else in the organization like that. Logan Gilbert, their first round pick, is is a ways down the road. 
So, and they didn't trade Haniger to get more pitching help. So that this is the guy. So I think they're going to stay with him as long as possible. We talked a lot about DePoto, but we did not touch on the investigation that went on this winter in response to the allegations that Larina Martin, the former director of high performance for the team, made about DePoto and others and racist and sexist behavior. And the Mariners' internal investigation cleared him. And obviously, there didn't seem to be a lot of concern on the Mariners' part, or they probably wouldn't have let him do a, a full teardown while this was going on. But then there was a separate MLB investigation that also didn't turn up any evidence of wrongdoing. But there's still a, a case going on, right? Because Martin sued and she she said that the MLB investigation was compromised in certain ways. So will we be hearing more about this and should we be hearing more about this? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, it's hard to say. So she lost the one, she didn't lose the case, but she was trying to get, she wanted her wrongful termination and, and the money that she felt she was owed from her contract or through your contract to be done in open court. But in her contract, it had a binding arbitration clause at any time, you know, if they, she was let go that, that an arbitrator would decide, you know, her final, what, what was owed and everything else, not an open court. And there has been a change in Washington law uh, recently about that, but she had signed her contract before that law went into place. So the judge recently ruled that, that hers does not fall under the current uh, news or the current law that's being in place because she, uh, and and as the the judge pointed out in the in the ruling that you know she understood what she she understood as somebody that's got like I think two PhDs and all the schooling that the judge pointed out you understand what binding arbitration means and you understood that it was in your contract when you signed it you know so that part I, I think for the Mariners is a win in the sense that they don't have to go to open court and you don't have all these guys you know in court testifying under oath about what happened uh, I, you know the. For me, the, the MLB investigation, which I heard was pretty thorough and they had a lot of people doing it, came down to, I, you know, in MLB's interest, are they really going to try and make a team look bad? I don't know. And the whole situation around it. I mean, it was a weird hire to begin with. You know, I, I met with, I talked with Lorena several times. It was obvious that she struggled to understand the concepts of the culture of baseball and how it works, you know, things, little things, just like what a side session means and what a bullpen means. She had to learn all those things. And I don't know that, I think she thought it might be easier to kind of indoctrinate herself, but baseball players inherently are creatures through their own habit and not very welcoming to outsiders, particularly ones that they feel like don't know enough about the game. So I, I just don't know that it ever, I don't think the hire and the whole process ever went the way it was envisioned by DePoto. And he made a massive mistake by over-promoting the situation in the first place. I mean, Jerry loves to talk. That's one of the reasons why I like covering. He's willing to talk, but he overhyped and over-promoted a, a, a job hire and then realized a month in that maybe this wasn't going to work exactly how he thought. How do you walk that back after you've told everybody how great this is going to be and how much it's going to help when then immediately within a month, month and a half, you're removing some of her responsibilities that were agreed upon in her contract that she would often use, say, look, this isn't my contract. I have this power. And you put somebody in that position that essentially has more power within the organization than your manager your, and all your, your directors of baseball operations, your, your, your scouting department, she has sat above all those. And, you know, it just, it just led to acrimony, I think, at times. I don't know whether or not that how this all went down. Do, I don't know that whether the working environment is great, but it just 
it took like being around the whole situation for about two weeks into spring training to know, to, to think this is just not going to work. It's, this is going to be a problem. And they were already trying to adjust it one year in and she fought back, which she had every right to do based on her contract. And then it just got ugly from there. All right. There's more we could ask, I'm sure. I'd love to hear about how you say Kikuchi has looked or how the Omar Narvaez framing experiment is going. Or That is <laughs> that is as expected. That's a little rough. I mean, like, I'm yeah. going from watching Zanino right. and every day to going to Narvaez. I mean, like, I, I, I suffered through the Miguel Olivo, Jeff Clement, <laughs> Kenzie Jojima years. Now I feel like I'm going back to that in the terms of receiving. <laughs> Yeah, so they're trying their best to, to make him better, and certain catchers have gotten better, so we'll see. But that's a, a project. And and then the Mariners have a new pitching coach, Paul Davis, who's kind of an interesting guy with an unusual background, wasn't a high-level player, was a college professor, etc. But you've got to go cover the actual Mariners in beautiful Peoria today. So I will just end with the question that we always end with, and if you want to touch on any of those things, you can. But we obnoxiously ask for a win total prediction from our oh. preview guests so now that i've uh, put you on the spot if you want to stall by answering anything else i brought up go ahead but we need a, a number for wins this season like i looked at the lineup i thought the lineup was okay and then i was you're, you're curious about how how long some of these guys are there i mean i never thought edwin encarnacion would even be on the team for spring training i thought they would right. trade him way to not understand the market there a little bit but uh, uh watching this bullpen it's it's pretty not good. I'll say 78, 77 wins. Okay. I, I think they can win 77 just because process of some bad teams. And they do have some capability on offense if some of these guys kind of revert back to form. But but don't you also don't you also kind of expect the gutting to continue as the season goes on? Yeah, I mean, like I, I do. I, I feel like Jay Bruce will be gone if they can trade him and D Gordon and Encarnacion, I guess. I don't know. Uh, 78, 77. That's right. Kind of where I was at. Last year, I said they'd win 79, or 79 and they won 89. So I, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> but I, I think the bullpen is going to be an issue. You go from having Diaz and Alex Colomay, who are pretty good, eight, nine guys, you know, eighth and ninth inning guys. I mean, Diaz was amazing to guys, you know, you're using Hunter Strickland, who could be traded as well if he's, you know, has any sort of bounce back, you know, and, and beyond that, I don't even know, like Corey Guerin and, Zach Roscup, who's got some talent but can't stay healthy, Dan Altavilla, a, a bunch of guys that are they're going to ask to do this. And you're also talking about a rotation that has Felix Hernandez, who's capable of giving you a two-inning start every so often, and, you know, Wade LeBlanc, who can, you know, who can be very effective but can also, if he's not right, will get hit, hit hard. So I, I just don't think that that will carry. I don't think they're a 100-loss team, but I don't think that they're going to be very good. All right, so you can follow Ryan all season long at the Seattle Times. You can listen to him on the Extra Innings podcast through the Seattle Times, and you can find him on Twitter at his name, Ryan Divish. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thank you for the great response to the announcement about the new co-hosts. We were all extremely gratified. It seemed like you were all very pleased, as we are, and we were all also really impressed that our Patreon supporters kept the secret for, I don't know, about seven hours, I think. I sent out the message on Thursday morning to our Patreon people, just figuring that they deserved a heads up before the rest of the world knew, just because they make this show possible. I thought it would be a nice little token of our appreciation, just to tip the 
them off. Hey, here's what you've been supporting. And I absolutely expected the news to get out, but it kept pretty quiet all day long. I don't know whether that's because I asked in my message, hey, it'd be nice if you kept this a a secret so it would be a surprise for everyone, or whether because no one who's paying to support the podcast actually wanted to help out anyone who isn't paying to support the podcast. I don't know what the motivations were, but we were all amazed. Not that we were trying to torture any non-Patreon supporters by denying them this knowledge. Anyway, thank you for the great response, and we're all really excited to be doing this together. This last show of the week, by the way, would normally be a Meg episode, but she's in Arizona hosting Fangraphs events, so Sam subbed in. This format will be fluid. And ending a week on a multiple of five really is just like old times. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and five supporters who have just signed up or agreed to give even more than they were already giving include Ben Llewellyn, Amos Blackman, Kevin Rust, E. May, and Jessica Kraler. Thanks to all of you. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine. Gotten a bunch of blurbs back from our blurbers this week. They're all looking really good. People are enjoying the book. I hope you will too in a few months. And we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll be back to talk to you next week. You can play it again, Sam. Your horse ain't empty. And they paid good money just to stay here a while. Just play it again, Sam. I think all coffee uh, is fine. I think all coffee is good. I've never, I have almost literally never had a bad cup of coffee. I love, I love oil change coffee. Yeah, gas station coffee is perfectly acceptable for me on most levels. I've never had a cup of coffee, period. So my, hang on. my wait, conscience is clean. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Wait, 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 what? You've never had a cup of coffee. I've never had a coffee. Start recording, Ben. <laughs> oh my god. How do you get how do you survive in the morning? <laughs> uh, I drink a lot of tea, but uh I don't yeah. Oh, okay. Other than I think I sipped coffee once when, when my mom was drinking it and I was little and curious, but that is my only coffee exposure. Wow. I, I mean, I, during the off season, when I'm waiting for Jerry DePoto to crush my hopes and dreams each day, I pretty much uh, drink a pot of coffee a day sitting at home. I, I, probably 80% of the liquid I consume is coffee. <laughs> I drink a lot of decaf, though. I drink decaf throughout the day. Uh, I, drink, I drink all coffee in the morning and booze at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all got water in it. Yeah, exactly.